Jason, I just filed the um, the, the third uh, voice of the CTO story. Uh, I wanted to listen to the podcast. I know we're recording right now, but um, I didn't get a chance. Uh, how'd it go? You know what's funny? <laughs> Rev actually did our intro for us. Uh, she did a whole like segment of welcome to the Waters Waveland podcast. I'm your host, Rev. Um, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so you know what's hilarious about that is i swear to you i spoke with her um on sunday monday i can't remember but i said so listen way shan and i we do an in we'll do the intro so you know let tim for those that don't know it's gonna be tim baker but we'll get to that i guess in a second um but let tim know that um it'll be an awkward start because you'll just be kind of jumping in with, okay, and now I'm joined by Tim. We're kind of showing how the sausage is made here now, I guess. We're going to leave this all in, by the way. I don't care. We're leaving this all in. We're not going to do a proper introduction. This is the open. It's a cold open. So for everybody that's confused, we'll get caught up in a second. But I told Reb, here's how the intro works. Here's how we're, Reb, uh, Weishe and I will do the intro. All you have to do is just be like, and now I'm joined uh, here with Tim. I'm Brad, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, just say, thank you for joining, blah, blah, blah. And that's it. And then everything else, Wei Shen will cut up and edit and we'll do the intro. So I love to see when people listen to the direction that I give. I, I clearly have no authority over anyone <laughs> on this staff. <laughs> Well, that maybe that, uh, and also it just shows that well, they well at least rep anyway uh, doesn't listen to any of our episodes. Yeah, I, yeah. I feel so happy. <laughs> you would think like if you're gonna be it's like her first podcast. I think that she's done the interview, so she's been on it as a as like one of as our one of our guests. But yeah. be like, oh, let me see how Wei Shen and Tony do it when they interview someone. No, no, just. So anyway, well, listen. Also, I, also, she was she uh, was very very kind to include some swear words in there that I had to bleep out. So, thank you very much, Reb. Thank you. I'm willing to Reb, do that for Tony on yes. on most occasions. Not not always, you know. Depending on yeah, you usually have to censor yourself all yeah. the time, really. Um, yes. But yeah, with Reb, man, girl, I expected more of you. <laughs> This was basically us slagging off Reb before she does an interview. The podcast guest is Tim Baker. Um, apparently, she gives an introduction. I will say that Tim uh, is one of the best follows on. I, I don't like most people on LinkedIn because they're like, they all want to be influencers and they're just, they all sound like too corporate PR speak. Like, here's how you can use general blah, blah, blah. He actually informs uh it's he, he it's almost a it's like journalism it's, he's a reason why he's a great source um and i'm assuming that they're talking about qsip reference data that kind of stuff maybe market data fees or something like that do i have that correct 
Yeah, you have that correct. So they talk about well, since since I have edited the part, mm-hmm. the interview that Reb has done, basically, <laughs> um, they talk about the Q, the ongoing QSIP suit, uh, also um, the FCA's wholesale market data study, um, and implications on like copyright uh, implications of the case actually on like copywriting market data and going into the future market data and reference data. So um, I would say, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting chat. Uh, so kudos to Reb for doing that. Just, you know, all the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just <laughs> failure on every other part, but at least the interview hopefully was good. The interview, it sounds like it was good. Tim's on it. It'll be fine. So we're good. Anyway, let's just get to it. <laughs> Good morning and welcome to the Waters Wavelength podcast. I'm your host today, Rebecca Natal. I'm here in London with Tim Baker, the financial services practice lead for Xbureau. And we're both here in London and we're here to discuss the uh, class action lawsuit against QSIP Global Services, S&P Global, FAXA, and the American Bankers Association. Tim, thanks for being here. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's great to be back in London and lovely to see you, uh, as always. Uh, thanks for having me. I should I should premise this conversation by saying, you know, these are kind of my personal views um, and not those of, of Xperos. Um, and, and just so you know, Xperio um, is a software development company. We build systems for banks and brokers and asset managers. So that's my day job, but my... Um, my kind of part-time job is kind of following this kind of interesting lawsuit that's been going on for a couple of years. Yeah. Tim is always on, always kind of ahead of me with the news um, when it comes to the QSIP case. I, I go on LinkedIn and uh, I always see a new post that there's something on the docket and I say, what the hell? How did I, how did I not see this? I swear I checked it 10 minutes ago, but um, Tim has been a very avid follower of this case and we have tried to be also. Um, for those not familiar with the case, about two years ago, um, the Christmas of 2022? Yeah, around then. Yeah, that's when the deal closed, I think, but yeah. a bit ahead of that. Um, yeah. uh, Factset decided to buy uh, QSIP Global Services, which obviously operates the QSIP identifier, from S&P Global, which had operated it for, I think, 53 years yeah. on behalf of the American Bankers Association. Um yeah, it was December 27th because I wasn't in the office, and so I knew I had to work on that when I got back. From I think the break. it closed. It was like announced um, something like the 26th of December, just before year end. Yeah. Um, so kind of was under the radar screen a little bit. Uh, Why do companies announce news at that time? Do you think? Who knows? Who knows what was motivating that? Probably because people are going to be mad about something, which could have been. Look, I mean the. The reason why I follow this is because I was a a kind of an angry customer of the service, and um, you know when S and P and IHS announced their merger, uh, it, it was also announced that they were going to have to sell the service, and I you know I I felt compelled to tell my network, hey, this is a great opportunity for the industry to take back this uh, utility that mm-hmm. has you know somewhat been run for profit. Right. And um, so that was when I first wrote something. Um, I put a put out a post about um, I think it was called something like QSIP, the tax on innovation. And I, you know, I've always felt as especially small companies, and I advise a lot of small companies. Getting started is really expensive, but when you've got to worry about 
licensing of something as basic as the CUSIP, then you know it does kind of limit you know what you can do with market data. Mm-hmm. So I I felt that this was an opportunity for um, this asset to pass um, you know into the hands uh, into safer hands basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my hope was that DTCC would buy it because they're already running a lot of um, utilities and. Um, and mechanisms in the market. They're also owned by the major institutions, um, but uh, yeah, they were they were significantly outbid by by Faxet, who who I think really valued the massive footprint that QSIP has. Mm-hmm. You know, every financial institution and tech firm in finance has to have a QSIP license, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time I had written a story. And it was uh, the industry watches warily um, as CUSA finds a new home in Faxet. Mm. And I had spoken to some industry practitioners who had mentioned, you know, regardless of their feelings about the sale, um, it was a great opportunity for Faxet, you know, which is a large data provider, but still kind of dwarfed by the bigger ones, Mm. Refinitiv, which is now LSEG, Bloomberg. Um, and that kind of upper echelon of data providers. So, you know, with this, the purchase of this utility that everybody who trades North American stocks and bonds has to use, um, that came the opportunity to kind of bundle its own proprietary data sets and sell its services in a new kind of avenue, um, which I think some people did not like that prospect. Well, look, competition's good, and I think FactSet, you know, who's base has always been in the asset management side um, you know always look to expand into other segments be it um, capital markets banking and wealth um, you know they've been growing significantly outside of asset management for the last you know few years but I think having this just the kind of client list and having contracts with so many clients outside of their core. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was the thing that tempted them to pay close to two billion dollars for, you know, a business which is probably 170 million dollars. Yes, yeah. so and they floated bonds to do it. Yeah, so they yeah they borrowed some money, which um, they probably didn't need to, but uh, um, yeah, it was a very big. I think it was probably their their biggest acquisition. Um, so pretty high stakes, I think, and. And, um, you know, just recalling the timing, I think it was only a month or two after the deal closed or the, the um, yeah, after the deal closed, um, they were hit by the, this, actually two uh, antitrust Quick lawsuits. Quick succession. Yeah, and, and um, you know, talking to a couple of the attorneys, they didn't know e- know about each other either. Right. It was a surprise. Yeah. Um, and um, so, and I'm sure it was a surprise to fax that. Um, and um, the ABA and uh, and S and P. Yeah, they've um, been unchallenged for for so long, and I think even the um, the parties who filed the suit were kind of surprised because it was you know a small New York based broker dealer, Dinosaur Financial. Yep. Um, you had a small asset manager in Connecticut, Hildeen. Yep. And you had um, a not even American firm, Swiss yeah, Swiss, uh, Swiss, yeah. Swiss yeah, Swiss Life Investment Management. It was yeah. It's I don't know quite how those three came together. Um, I mean, um, and I'm a little bit surprised that more firms haven't formally joined the you know the plaintiffs mm-hmm. or the you know the class. Um, 
but I think it goes to the fact that um, you know it, it, if you go up against these big firms you can it can come back and bite you I mean I know of a lot of firms who would love to join but just don't want the political kind of aggravation and the risk that that might bring. Mm -hmm. So there is there is quite a bit of um and look I think some of the really big firms who are maybe paying you know hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to the service even for them it's still a rounding error because if 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 that service was ever cut off or if they had problem getting hold hold of, hold of the feed um that would put their whole business at risk. Yeah. So it's kind of why take the risk? Yeah. But clearly, you know, the market's got to a breaking point that this, that, that, you know, this suit actually happened. Yeah. Um, so you know. I am also surprised that no one else has joined. I wasn't at first because I completely understand, mm. you know, where you're coming from with that. But so to give it the, the TLDR mm. um, on what's happened in the case so far, there was a lot of back and forth. Um, the two separate suits were consolidated, ordered to be consolidated yep. by <coughs> um, Judge Catherine Fela. Fela, Fela, yeah. In this, uh, a federal judge in the Southern District of New York. Who, by the way, is amazing because this. I think this is really complicated. I I struggle to kind of get mm -hmm. through the documents, but she has really kind of got a, a very obviously is her job, but she just seems to be on top of this quirky world of market data already. Yeah. Um, so doing a fantastic job, I think. She ordered the cases consolidated um, and listened to obviously both sides' arguments, and um, they had made the the plaintiffs had made many many claims, including um, they wanted a summary judgment on the copyright. Ability, which is a word now, I guess. Mm. Um, the copyrightability of QCIP code, individual QCIP codes, and also the QCIP database, which it turns out the QCIP database is copyrightable. That's right. The individual codes, yeah. not copyrightable, much like a phone book. Um, and another, the, the other really major um, allegation made by the plaintiffs was they were seeking, they are seeking judgment on whether. S&P and QCIP and FACSA and the ABA have violated the Sherman Antitrust Act, um, specifically sections one and two. Mm. And in um, one of the judge's uh, opinions, um, she said that there is enough um, ground for the case to proceed um, and to hear the arguments based on their allegations that they did that, uh, violate section two of the Sherman Antitrust Act, which was a piece of legislation um, FDR, FDR. Yeah, it goes way back. Yeah, yes. it was an FDR piece of legislation that outlawed monopo monopolies um, in the states. So that's what's happened so far. And I was surprised that there either wasn't a settlement before it got to that point, mm -hmm. or and that you know she said yes, sure, we can proceed on these grounds, and that nobody kind of came out and wanted to join the class action at that point because she she said there's merit here. So. Well, I'm not sure whether, I mean, I think when, when you see someone getting into a fight, sometimes you step back a bit and go, yeah. okay, I'm going to see how this pans out. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's, a, I, I, I think anyone with skin in the game who, are, who you know, would like to see some of the issues addressed, um, probably reading the tea leaves thinks that the case is going to go, you know, the plaintiff's way. Mm -hmm. And so that's a good outcome for everyone, right? Um I'm surprised that there hasn't been a faster move to a settlement simply because um, Section 2 or Part 2 of the Sherman Act, 
there's two parts of the Sherman Act, and I had to kind of learn this as I was reading up on it. The first part is all about collusion, so that's price fixing. And and there was no collusion here. It was just like because they're the only you know, there was no one to collude with. Right. Um so that was that was kind of uh, dismissed. But section two is all about using your market position uh in a kind of um an aggressive way. Yeah. And and that's very much and that and the, the DOJ has quite so 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 section two actually the Sherman Act hasn't really been widely prosecuted. No. Um you know Usually the DOJ has to get involved. Yeah, so um and um so this is kind of the first example in a long time where section two is actually potentially gonna go to court and will be a big case always a big case um, so it's kind of interesting but there was I think I referenced it in one of my pieces the, D- the DOJ have come out recently and said look we're going to start prosecuting this stuff more mm-hmm. aggressively mm-hmm. so what does that mean well it's it's a criminal offence um, so this raises the stakes significantly for the companies and the individuals because you know there are criminal offences being claimed here sure um, so that's why I don't you know I'm, I'm wondering why you know, there hasn't been a settlement yet because that's the best way to avoid yeah. anyone going to jail or anything horrible. And look, you know, I know a bunch of the people, you know, involved in running these businesses and they're all good people. Yeah. Right? We're, you know, uh, this is not a personal thing. This is just something that's evolved over, you know, probably 20 years of, of you know, corporate pressure to build profits and grow a business. Mm-hmm. And everyone who's been in market data understands those those pressures. But now it's kind of serious. Yeah. Um, and um, and I don't know whether it's complicated by virtue of the fact that you've got facts that who's who can really claim to be an innocent party because they just bought the business, you know. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the you know uh, obviously S and P who have who you know have been building this business and you know supported the market and doing you know and obviously the market wouldn't function without that service. So you can imagine that there's uh, and then you've got the ABA who are kind of sitting there taking their you know their royalty checks um and um you know uh, i think you know they have become more vocal i suppose over the last few years but you know they've not been actively involved in running the you know running the business no. so there's there's different even within the defendants there's kind of different views yeah um so maybe that's delayed things but i think the latest back and forth that we've seen um, may well, you know, start to kind of bring everything into clearer, mm-hmm. you know, into a clearer view, and maybe, maybe there will will be a settlement sooner. But who knows? I'm not an expert <laughs> <laughs> or a fortune teller. Yeah. Well, so yes, in the in the latest events um, unfolding in the case, so the, uh, Judge Fela did say that the case can proceed, which means that they are in the evidence and discovery phase of of you know collecting and sharing those documents and in the last couple of docket um, yeah docket entries um, which is public knowledge for any or public record for anyone who's, who's interested um, the, the case can be followed on pacer.gov um, there was some back and forth about the plaintiffs wanting um, documents related to a investigation investigation or an inquiry yeah. um, held by the European Commission in 2011, I want to say. 2011, 2012, yeah. Yep. Um, related to 
um, S&Ps charging for fees for uh, U.S. ISINs. Yeah. yeah. So, so the way it works is um, the ISIN is a kind of global standard, and it's the aggregation of of um, ident- security identifiers across all the markets. Mm-hmm. So most markets will have a local um, agency like the QSIP service, um, and they'll be responsible for minting identifiers when new securities are created. And then those, that, that corpus of um, identifiers is then assigned a country code yeah. um, and then becomes part of the ISIN superset, if you like. Um, and what was happening was um, aspects of the kind of licensing regime, I'll, I'll call it, from the CUSIP world, because mm-hmm. basically the ISIN for a U.S. bond is, is the same as the CUSIP, right. except it has U.S. on the front of it. <laughs> So it's basically the same number, and I, you know, I think that I think um, you know uh, firms using using that standard or the ISIN were being um, not only charged a lot of money, but also um, had to disclose who they were licensing the uh, the identifier to, so that the service could go after them for a license as well. So it's a nice. little bit. I always think it's a little bit like a pyramid scheme, basically. <laughs> And that's part of the, you know, that's part of the, the plaintiff's point, which is some of those practices, you know, are, um, you know, pretty aggressive in, in terms of the way that they chase after people and, and hound them, um, you know, to pay a license, um, based on um, the premise that the CUSIP is protected by copyright. Yeah. So back in 2011, 2012, there were the, the European Commission were involved, and there was a ruling. Um, that um, basically, I th- from memory, I think it put a cap on the prices um, that they could charge for ISIN. Yeah, fifteen bucks per day or something. It was it was a relatively low cap. Yeah, and and ironically, what it means is if you're a, 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 a an ISIN subscriber in Europe, you're significantly paying less than if you were in the US. Yeah. Um, so there were there was a lot of discovery and process involved in that ruling, and I th- I believe that the latest back and forth was was the uh, defendant group were trying not to kind of disclose you know all of the materials that came out of that investigation, right? Um, which which I, I I would assume included a lot of kind of um, you know fairly negative kind of you know evidence. Um, and um, to cut a long story short, the the judge came back and said, "No, you have to hand that stuff over." Mm-hmm. But not all of it. But not all of it. If it was subject to NDA, although I think a lot of it probably wasn't subject to an NDA, because I don't know why you'd put an NDA in place when you're being, you know, kind yeah. of investigated with a regulator. With a regulator. Although, I would imagine that some of it. Well, so some of it might be if it, if if the commercially sensitive information, sure. like how you price things and what have you. But right. Um, so I think that that is that that handed a little mini victory over to the plaintiffs mm-hmm. um, because they're now going to kind of get access, and I think it was a warning shot for the defendants to say, look, don't don't hold back here, mm-hmm. you know. And and we've already seen in some of the documents that came out last year that there's some pretty damning emails and things around, um, <laughs> which kind of support the you know the plaintiffs' kind of arguments. Um, so what one might assume that that um, little mini victory, if you like, um, 
you know, will kind of move things along in terms of maybe a settlement of some description. But again, who knows? Who's to say? Yeah, yeah strong personalities. Um, um, so yeah, there's a lot of them in the market data and the reference yeah. data world. You think that everyone's going to be, you know, just like, you know, tired Let's in the back it, office. This is the They're most the exciting most thing that's happening in the industry. <laughs> so true. Um, it really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's uh, it, it's going to be very interesting to. I, I think the other thing that kind of came out in the in the prior round, I thought was was maybe not really fully digested was the was this fact that the co the copyright does not apply to the individual CUSIPs uh -huh. or even slices of the data so uh -huh. subsets of the data so it applies to the full database which no one would really argue about because that's got you know it's got IP in it because they yeah. do clean the data and standardize it and all of that yeah but but already what's come out of the case so far I think should give firms more confidence to um, incorporate the CUSIP in their in their in their uh, product, for mm -hmm. example. Whereas in the past, a lot of firms, you know, would come up with creative workarounds to do that. Well, web scraping. I think the SEC. What is it? Thirteen uh, F uh, form. Thirteen yeah, F. Yeah. You have to report CUSIPs in your holdings, which makes and because thirteen F is available when you when a firm files it yep. publicly, that makes the contents publicly available, which makes the QSIP numbers publicly available information. So you can web scrape you, and you can build your own uh, version of a QSIP database yeah. from source. There's nothing stopping anyone from doing that. I haven't seen anyone do that. No. Um, At least not that they'll tell you about. And, it, and again, that that might be because everyone's just kind of waiting for this to kind of sure. you know be settled and closed and everyone moves forwards um, but uh, I think that's um, that should give firms and I know many many firms um, you know who have had to you know either work around the QCIP license or you know just basically excluded the QCIP from their from their data because they uh, were nervous about well, they didn't, either didn't want to pay the license or they were nervous about being sued by mm -hmm. the service. So uh, they should feel more confident to do that, I think, Yeah, uh, which is a good thing. And to put this in, I guess, a wider industry context, so this has all been going down um, for the last two years, but over the last year here in the UK, um, the Financial Conduct Authority has been conducting what's called its Wholesale Market Data Study, yeah, yeah. where it's looking into um, the fees and the pricing structures and the licensing structures um, that are in place by primary, I think the primary focus are the credit rating agencies. Yeah. Um, but they're also looking at, you know, they're, they're looking at market data providers of any stripes and colors. So index providers, credit rating agencies, ESG providers, um, terminal providers, and they're trying to get a sense of whether the pricing structures and the licensing structures and the fees that are paid by um, users here in the UK are fair and reasonable. Mm. And the results of its study, which it began in March of last year, are expected in March of this year. So we're coming yeah, up on the come, results of the study out, yeah. in a couple weeks. Um, so I think it's interesting um, that all of these that, that that these things are happening at the same time. I don't know whether I'm just you know an optimist that loves drama. I do know <laughs> that I am an optimist that loves drama. I'll be honest. You know I don't know if there's going to be a sea change um, that comes out of this case. 
and the FCA's potential rules that might follow. Um, what are you with me on the optimism? Are you more of a cynic? Where are you at? Um, that's a good question. I think I'm I'm Thank you. mildly optimistic um, that there are some changes coming. Clearly, what the FCA is, do is doing, you know, has been predicated on. You know, kind of backroom discussions and complaints and what have you. These, you know, uh, the FCA, uh -huh. FCA doesn't decide to do this of their own volition. Sure. Um, I think uh, they're going after some low-hanging fruit like the index providers. Um, you know, where I think you've got even more concentration in the market. Mm -hmm. But again, I think even in market data, you've had a lot of market concentration through through M and A activity as well. Um, I think the other thing that, and this is where the kind of Cusip thing comes back in, you know, this whole question around copyright and who owns the data is yeah. really interesting because, um, you know, there are some schools of thought that, um, you know, market prices, which are very tightly controlled by the exchanges, um, are kind of untouchable, that the exchange owns the, you know, the price that a trade takes place at. Sure. Um, and I, I had a, a, a you know a stint working at an exchange you know a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and that exchange IEX was very much of the view that the data was owned by the participants in the market. Yeah. Um, and that's why they made their market data freely available. Mm -hmm. You know, without you know without uh, a license being required. Mm -hmm. um, now they could make that radical choice because they weren't making tons of money out of selling market data. Right. But the, but I think as soon as you start going down this route of well, who owns the data? And if a, you know, if a if a um, a, a CUSIP number is not protected by pro by by copyright, you know, why should the closing price in a market be protected? Mm -hmm. Because that too is a fact. You know, the the um, when you get in, you get into you know whether something is protected by copyright you know uh, if you think about um a painting obviously is a creative you know art or a book yeah. is a collection of words whereas the individual words are not protected by um you know by the copyright in the same way as perhaps the closing price of microsoft shares on the new york stock exchange shouldn't be or nasdaq shouldn't be you know protected by copyright yeah um, and then you get into the whole kind of broader question around, you know, redistribution of that data and the licensing of that data. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's a huge amount of money just tied up in, you know, entitling and tracking and, and collecting a toll mm -hmm. every time a human looks at a share price mm -hmm. on a screen, mm -hmm. be, you know, with, and especially if you're a professional, you know, the fees start to really add up. And so there's lots of, of layers in the market kind of clipping tickets and, and taking their take and at yeah. the end of it, it that's why market data is relatively expensive by the time it gets to a professional user right um and that's all predicated on the fact that data is owned by an institution not by the collective market sure so whether whether we get into that because of the acoustic case or not who knows but i think it i think it's pretty interesting yeah. some of the questions it starts to raise and maybe if this case is successful on the plaintiff side, maybe there will be more to come.
yeah. you know, and maybe it's maybe it is um, kind of market prices and security prices that you know someone will have a swing at as well. So that yeah. that could be kind of another another twist in the uh, in the tail. Yeah, there have been many. It's kind of like if you went to the grocery store and bought a bunch of groceries and then to come home and cook a meal, you still had to pay extra money. Yeah, because you actually did something with the, exactly. uh, with the materials. You, yeah. you took these tomatoes and this garlic and this basil and you made a pomodoro sauce. My last name is Natal, so mm. that's, that's what I had to go with. Um, no, like, I think it's a great analogy. I think, um, you know, and there's this whole licensing regime around derived data, you know. Yeah. So, you know, if you take data from a data provider, you're only allowed, allowed to do a certain thing with it. And then if you if you want to redistribute it, you have to pay more money and you have to say who you're sending it to. And then if you want to do calculations on it, you pay a bit less. And it's you know it's and, and that's why there's there's probably thousands of market data specialists who will who just have sleepless nights mm-hmm. worrying about whether data is leaked somewhere. Yeah. You know that it shouldn't have done, and that's a real shame. I mean, that slows down innovation. That that save these data professionals. Yeah. They haven't slept in <laughs> twenty years. Exactly. Um, but I'm not saying. Look, I, look. I think obviously the the market runs on data, and so the integrity of that data is important. So I'm not saying, you know, it should be a complete free for all. But I think there are certain. Um, practices that have emerged over the years that are overly complicated and, and make it very difficult, you know, for for new players to enter the market because mm-hmm. it just gets really expensive and risky. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, really, you know, there should be more smaller firms getting into this business and being mm-hmm. disruptive. And mm-hmm. and there are relatively few firms, um, you know, who can raise the capital to do that. Well, that's just that. That's like in what? What is? Is it a trope? Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. But I feel like any time we get a small firm with a noble goal of wanting to like take on one of these big data vendors, you know. Although, yeah, I'm thinking of Symphony specifically. Mm-hmm. Remember the Bloomberg yep. killer? It just seems insurmountable and impossible. And you know, Symphony will tell you now that was never their goal, which. I mean, they have a new CEO. It used to be David Gurley. It's now Brad Levy. I think that might have been David Gurley's goal once upon a time. No one ever... Um, it's very difficult to raise money if if your goal is to take on Bloomberg and Bloomberg messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably the subject of a whole other podcast. Yeah. I think Brad's done a really great job. Yeah. I think he, we have talked about I think yeah. this is an episode in the past. Uh, okay. Um, I'll have to look it out. Um no, I think the challenge with Symphony, you know, initially was if you want to create a kind of messaging network, yeah. you have to have a balance between people listening and people talking. Mm-hmm. Whereas Symphony was very much kind of sell side sponsored, and so lots and lots of, you know, sell side firms, but there was there wasn't the network effect that, that Bloomberg had built over right. the years. Um, it's very difficult to build that, but you know they keep chipping away at it and. Uh, um, but yeah, no one, no one who has the ambition of taking on Bloomberg will ever succeed. Yeah, because it's a, it's an incredible um, franchise and organization. Um, but I do think that you know fintech, and I'm a kind of fintech um, supporter, and believe there should be more disruption in the market mm-hmm. and more. Inno- that's where the innovation comes from. Yeah. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about 
you know, the big firms and innovation. And there's really not a strong motivation for these big firms to to innovate because yeah. they just have these cash machines that every year, you know, 95% recurring, uh, sorry, uh, retained business. Yeah. Uh, with strong pricing power, um, you don't really have to. You don't even have to sell sell anything yeah. to stay in business. Yeah. So it's it's a terrific uh, business model, um, and everyone wants to be in that business. Mm-hmm. But it's it's harder and harder to break into it. Yeah. Because of these big barriers. Well, can you think of any instance? And you know, we're talking about QCIP a lot, mm. but you know, QCIP, any any of the ratings agency providers or any of these index providers, you know, where the product feels like it's pretty much the same every year. Can you, but can you think of any instances of in a meaningful innovation um, that have, you know, happened in the ratings agencies or the indexes or, you know, in these identifier spaces? Um, look, I think the index space has, has been pretty innovative, I think, okay. you know, because there are, um, and this kind of is tracking the, you know, the explosion in ETFs where, you know, there's, I think there's a, you know, multiple of, e- of ETFs than there are underlying securities now. Um, so there's lots of ways of kind of, ways of measuring and investing in the market now that we we didn't have even 10 years ago. Um, and uh, so I don't think there's been a lack of innovation there. I think there's been a lack of innovation around um, just the way that market data is distributed. I mean, mm-hmm. we have this thing called the cloud, and we have market data, kind of data marts. But I don't. I haven't seen a fundamental change in the way that data gets from, you know, kind of point A to point B. Point A to, a to B. You're right. Um, and the li- the licensing regimes haven't really kind of evolved. I don't think. Uh, in the same way as you've seen in. You know the music industry, mm-hmm. and you've seen you know pay per pay per view and pay per use models. Mm-hmm. We just haven't seen that. You still have to buy huge amounts of data and use a small percentage of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you buy a terminal product like a Bloomberg, and you only use five percent of it. Right. Um, why why isn't there a product that allows you just to choose the data you want and you pay for what you consume? Yeah. Well, that's not a good business, right? right? That's you know that's offering a lot of choice to you know the the market. Um, so I think that's that's an area where I'd like to see more innovation. Yeah. You know, at the um, everything from the way the desktop products you know um, work, you know, back into where the data is sourced, and and maybe AI and machine learning will kind of start to open up markets, and it's mm-hmm. certainly more feasible now to as you said you know scrape edgar for example and and derive data you know from from those sources um but i think it's um you know there's still a relative uh relatively high degree of control around market prices that's that, yeah. that's the one that i think is is going to be very you know kind of difficult to unwind what do you think of and this is something we've covered quite a bit on our website. If you go to the tag, Bloomberg or, or Figgy, you'll find the mm. the, um, the stories. You know, Figgy, the financial instrument global identifier, originally developed by Bloomberg, and now um, it, they contributed to the Object Management Group, which is a mm. standards consortium. You know, it was meant to kind of try to displace QSA, right? Um, mostly unsuccessfully, as far as displacing QSA goes. That's not to say that 
the figgy isn't used in some capacities. I know in, in crypto, um, they've been assigning crypto identifiers mm. with it. Um, and it did become, it did get national um, standard designation um, in the U.S. and in Brazil. Um, what do you think of the figgy? Well, I think you're right. I mean, the figure was established, I, I believe, uh, in response to not just the kind of dominance of the QSIP, which was controlled by S&P, but also uh, the RIC, the Reuters Instrument Code, which was uh, basically a more human-readable identifier, but certainly most of the kind of trading systems use the RIC mm -hmm. uh, on the equity side. Um, and it, what it meant was it was very difficult for a big firm that had built, by this I mean a bank or a big asset manager, built a lot of systems around the RIC to kind of migrate off of any kind of Reuters, then Reuters content. Mm -hmm. um, so the switching costs were really high because you kind of tied yourself to this core piece of information, yeah. you know, this, this, this symbology. Um, and the RIC had a whole bunch of flaws in its own right. You know, the RICs were reused and weren't very machine readable and all kinds of issues, uh, which I've talked about before. Um, so I think the, I think the figure came about partly because they needed their own kind of, you know, identifier that they owned and controlled. And, um, I think did a really nice job in terms of making um, the identify more open the RIC was you yeah. know, was very very tightly protected for obvious reasons by by Thomson Reuters uh, and still is I believe uh, to this day um, and uh, ironically a RIC is a very simple thing it's the market ticker mm -hmm. plus the um, the market identifier mm -hmm. so with a dot in between them <laughs> so that is kind of protected. And, and they were also subject to a, a, an EC settlement as well, which which clipped the clipped the wings a little bit of, of TR. Um, so 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 I think the figgy did a nice job in terms of making the identifier somewhat open. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, you still need to, if you want all that ref that rich reference data, yeah, you've got to pay a subscription for that. Mm -hmm. But it um, and now there are services out there, third party services that will help you. Switch between a figgy and a CUSIP and you know do yeah. Do that there's a lot of mapping involved, and there. I, th I think that m those mapping services will become that they, they. I think they were very limited in their functionality because of the the, the licensing regime of the CUSIP. So maybe that's going to be easier for clients to switch between um, between the figgy and the CUSIP and and you know some of the other and the ISIN. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a good thing, um, and I just think it's a shame that every big firm feels the need to have its own identifier mm -hmm. because it would save the industry a lot of blood, sweat, and tears if there was just one. Yeah, and that it was completely open, and it had sufficient open reference data so clients could go, oh, that that QCIP is that bond. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's got this. Um, you know the, the, this term structure or this uh, maturity date or whatever. The probably four or five things you need to be able to identify that bond as being the bond you think it is. Right. Uh, and if that was entirely open, this is again why my hope was the the CUSIP service would would go over to DC, DTCC because they would probably open it up a bit more. Mm -hmm. um, and um, for the benefit of the market because that's kind of their mission. 
Um, so, as I say, it's a shame that there's a figgy in a way, and there was a need, you know, to have a figgy. And, and you don't have to go much further, and you'll find lots of other firms, smaller firms, have had to come up with their own identifiers. Yeah. And then someone else has to come up with a cross-referencing service to include that. You know, at, at, at TR, when I was there, we, we, we created the um, Perm ID, which was the internal identifier. And you can go to permid.org and you can see a unique identifier. And we put quite a bit of open data out there as well. Um, and and this, this identifier issue goes way beyond just securities. There's also mm-hmm. companies, you know. Yeah, um, yeah they in Bradstreet with their DUNS number. There's the DUNS number, and then there's various government-backed identifiers. Yep. And, oh, uh, the, what's it? Uh, LEI. There's the LEI, which has, has really gained traction, a lot of traction. Um, and then, and then again, there's a lot of, you know, cross-referencing services to cross-reference sure. securities with those. You know, so it's it, it's a real spaghetti. Yeah. And it it it's almost like an unnecessary thing. Yeah. You know, because if there was a standard. Yeah. Every problem solved creates a new well, problem. When we opened up the perm idea, and this was what we'd been building for many years at TR, and it was really well designed and thought out, I had a lot of clients say to me, we don't need another identifier. And I <laughs> said, well, wait, this is a better one. This is a bit more open. And, yeah. you know, and we did, it did, you know, you could go from a RIC to a perm ID, for example, so you could make that traversal. But it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of complexity in a market that should be much simpler. Yeah. Because everyone's trying to kind of, you know, again, this goes back to the motivation of FactSet. Probably they wanted to control and identify. This Full is, circle. Yeah, there we go. Tim, is there anything we missed? Do you think? Um, no, I think we speculated a little bit about what might happen. I mean, the disappointing thing that I think is going on is if this thing goes to to court, we might not see it until twenty seven, twenty twenty seven. Yeah. Um, um, so it's a very long process, and, and maybe that's the thing that will convince everyone we should just sit down and shake hands and come to some sure. settlement. It's um, a long time to pay to pay legal fees. Um, no, I think we I think we covered a lot of ground there, um, and you know I'm gonna I'm gonna keep following it because you know I I've got lots of people who ping me with bits of information now, which some of it I can't put I can't write about. Um, because it's kind of in, very inside baseball, but um, it's it's uh, it surprised me how many people who are actually really interested in following this space. Mm-hmm. And to your credit, you follow it closely. Not not that many people are following it, um, no, which is yeah. really why I write about it because I think it's an important issue. The amount for of the calls industry. I'm on where I bring it up to someone I mean granted I guess I don't speak to specific or I don't speak to market data people 24-7 mm. right so I can't expect everybody to know about it but I bring it up and sometimes I get such a blank stare I'm like how do you not know about this there's it's so because it's, it's so very fun. yeah it's very nerdy and inside but baseball yeah, it is. It is. No, I love I love this industry I'm very passionate about it but you know my 20 year old kids <laughs> if I explain to them what I did they would be so bored it's like really dad um but I think um no, I think it's I think it's fascinating and, and look the markets run on this stuff. Yeah without, without yeah, it's all of truly this. the plumbing. And it was you know, going back to the nineteen sixties, the reason why the acoustic came about was because they had to close the markets every Wednesday to clear all the paper backlog because everything was on paper. Yeah. Um and it was someone some bright spark at um, McGraw Hill at the time who had been appointed to 
this group of people, uh, including you know McGraw-Hill, the textbook maker. Yeah, McGraw-Hill is okay. is S and P. Yeah. Should I know that? You probably should know that. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I did know that. Just yeah. for everyone listening, that was a joke. Um. So I can't remember the name of the guy, but he he got involved, and he he was very instrumental in saying we need a unique identifier that would be printed on every share certificate, so that when we match a buy and a sell, uh-huh. it's always a match. And that was the CUSIP. That was where the CUSIP started, and the ABA, you know, were the kind of governing body. You know, it's a non-profit. Um, some might argue with that when you look at their, you know, how much money they make. It's <laughs> um, a separate podcast, um, <laughs> but but the um, that that's where it all goes back to to you know making markets more efficient, which I think is a great you know kind of goal. Um, and it's kind of lost its way a bit. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Just like. I have now that I'm an American living in London and you're a Londoner living I in predict, New York. So here's a prediction. You'll be here in 10 years. No! Okay, and maybe. You'll have, a, you'll have a nice flat in Kensington Gardens. Oh, I love uh, that for me. When and, do I um, win the lottery? And uh, you'll have won the lottery as well. Okay, because um, it's the only way well, of affording you know, that flat. You know, someone who moved to Mexico and then the US with no intention of staying more than a year and 27 years later I'm still living abroad. Um, yeah, I need to get around to applying for my citizenship. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's very easy to put your roots down. London's a great city. I love coming here. Yes, yeah. you know it's very vibrant. It's the centre of of you know a lot of the financial markets of the world. So it's a great place to be. If you take nothing away from this podcast except this, it should be this: you can't predict the future. You cannot. All right. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for being here. Thanks today. for having me, Rebecca. That was a great chat. It was great. Um, we'll turn this over to your favorites, Wei Shen Wong and Tony Malakian, and I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>